2: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Sarah Tyson, and Malcolm Keating. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Jim Klaga, who is a professor of philosophy at Virginia Tech. His new book, Wittgenstein's Artillery, Philosophy as Poetry, is just out from the MIT Press. One should really only do philosophy as poetry. What could Ludwig Wittgenstein have meant by this? What was the context for this odd remark? In his new book, Klage provides a perspective on Wittgenstein as a person and how his life intersected with his work, in particular in the transition from his early Tractatus Logico Philosophicus to the later Philosophical Investigations. Based on private notebooks and memoirs by some of Wittgenstein's students, Klage, sees Wittgenstein's interactions with his students as gradually prodding him to come to grips with the problem of how to influence the frames of mind that people take to philosophical problems. Poetry, along with parables, similes, and other imaginative presentations, exemplify a way of addressing these non-cognitive attitudes. And in the end, Wittgenstein conceded that he was not entirely successful in his efforts. This is a fascinating exploration of Wittgenstein as a person and its intersection with his work. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jim Klaga, welcome to New Books in Philosophy. Hi. Hi, Um, so I'm really uh, excited to be talking about your new book, Wittgenstein's Artillery, Philosophy is Poetry. Um, Before we get to the book, we like to start with a little bit of background about the author, right? Um, So can you tell us a bit about yourself and, you know, how you came to become a philosopher and then how you got to, you know, sort of focusing on Wittgenstein and then, you know, how this particular book came about?
1: Okay. I grew up in a suburb of Cleveland and... I would say maybe the most formative experience in high school was being on the debate team. And in fact, I did that in college as well for a couple of years. Uh, I finally had to give it up because it was taking up so much time, I wasn't doing so well in my classes. So that was a a good choice, but nevertheless, it was a a very formative experience, the sort of idea of doing research, of doing uh, argumentation back and forth. speaking in public and so forth. I thought I'd be a lawyer but uh it turned out to be good preparation for being a philosopher also and a professor. Yeah. Um, when I was in college I took a class in the history of philo- a year long class in the history of philosophy my freshman year and you know that certainly took got my interest when I decided to take an additional philosophy class my sophomore year the, by the time they got to me, the only class left was a class called contemporary philosophy, which was probably more advanced than I should have taken at that point. But uh, I took it anyway. It got my imagination. We read uh, Bertrand Russell's uh, f- lectures on philosophy of logical atomism, and I think that kind of grabbed me in terms of getting interested in philosophy. I um, and then from the same professor uh, the next year, I took a seminar on Wittgenstein, and I guess the thing that most interested me was the mystery of his Tractatus and his philosophical investigations. They, especially the Tractatus seems to come out of nowhere. And uh, so I was interested in, you know, who wrote this and why. And so uh, when I went off to graduate school at UCLA, first thing I did was uh, start poking around in the library, trying to find out more about Wittgenstein. Um, And I even started to compile a uh, a little booklet, I guess you'd say, uh, that I called the an intellectual and historical background to Wittgenstein and the Troctatus. And that actually <laughs> made its way into a book that I just published last year also called Troctatus in Context. So that was a long time in making. But anyway, it was learning about uh, Wittgenstein, the person that uh, really got me interested. And uh, I would say a lot of my research on Wittgenstein has been about him as a person and how his biography uh, interacts with his philosophy.
2: Uh, Okay. Well, this book definitely, you know, is, is along those lines, right? The interaction of his, the evolution, I'd say, I guess, of his, you know, philosophical views, or at least the way they're conventionally uh, divided into, you know, the early sort of tractatus and the investigations as, you know, later, um, you know, the later Wittgenstein, um, and you place that in, in, uh, in a context of the evolution of his responses to various, um, audiences for his philosophy. Um, well, let me just, let's start with the title actually, because, you know, Wittgenstein's artillery philosophy is poetry, you know, itself is kind of a mysterious sort of, a a title. So could you could you explain a bit about, you know, what the artillery metaphor is?
1: Yeah, and uh I think there is a sort of uh feeling of being uh a tension between the the title of Wittgenstein's artillery and the subtitle of philosophy as poetry.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah.
1: Well, uh Wittgenstein fought during World War 1. He in fa- fact volunteered to fight even though he wouldn't have had to. He Uh, could have had a medical excuse uh, uh, from a hernia that he had. And uh, as an extremely rich man who had inherited uh, his share of a fortune from his father who died before the war, he could have got himself some other kind of posting, uh, but he volunteered without any mention of his medical or financial circumstances and ended up more or less fighting on the front lines a lot. In fact, that was his desire to, to, to fight in the front lines. He, uh, we, we know a lot about this because he kept a, a diary uh, from the time he uh, entered the war. Uh, in uh, The diary included his philosophical reflections on the right-hand pages, but on the left-hand pages, his more personal uh, thoughts and experiences, which he wrote in code. And uh, many years later, Wittgenstein's editors published the philosophical notebooks, uh, but didn't say a word about the the personal ones. And so the personal ones have only just been published in English translation. Just, uh, uh, I think, day before yesterday, Marjorie Perloff uh, published a book called Private Notebooks that include his private c- comments in, in German, and then her her translation of that. So we know a lot about Wittgenstein's experiences in the war and uh, what those meant to him and uh, how those interacted with his philosophical thoughts. And so that has been really interesting to me. So he uh, served as an artillery observer. And uh, not only that, but he used part of his fortune in 1916 to donate uh, well over $2 million uh, in, in current, uh, in current terms, you might say, uh, for the uh, Austro-Hungarian army to buy, uh, a new, uh, uh, version of the 30 and a half centimeter, uh, mortar that, uh, he was, uh, spotting for. So th- this all meant a lot to him. And, um, I, I use this as a metaphor. Actually, he used military metaphors in his own notebooks. He talked about how he was laying siege to his problems. And he said, uh, this problem was such that he was going; he'd he'd sooner uh, uh, lay blood before this uh, issue than to retreat from it. So he liked these kind of metaphors, and so I pick up on the metaphor too. And uh, the 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 artillery spotter one I think is especially interesting because, uh, and this gets uh, to the the heart of my book. Wittgenstein cared a lot; event he started to care. I I. I uh, locate this around 1931 he started to care about how his audience reacted to his ideas and what he could do to engage his audience more with his ideas and uh, uh, how he could present his ideas in ways that would be more engaging. so i I call this his uh, 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 artillery spotting uh, with his own with his own work.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, did you mean that literally that uh, just uh, yesterday or the day before the private notebooks? Yes. Oh, wow. Huh. <laughs> the um, the,
1: Eng- the first English translation of them came out uh, uh, April fifth. Yes.
2: Um, oh my, that's pretty your, impressive. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Your colleague David Stern is uh, yes. eventually going to publish his own English translation of those notebooks. Uh, well, I, I uh, gave a blurb for Marjorie's translation. I said it uh, was a translation more of a poet than a scholar. And oh. I'm sure David's translation will be the translation more of a scholar than a poet. Oh,
2: great. Well, I look forward <laughs> to that, too. Yeah. Um, okay. So, um, okay, so you mentioned audience and, and so have I. Um, so you, you 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 have this concept of a esotericist um, that you use to characterize his initial way of, you know, kind of presenting his work or interacting with people or in some, in some way sort of um, being a philosopher in a public, a public sphere and not just like, you know, sitting in his, you know, Norwegian cabin or something like that. Um, can Can you explain that, that initial position that he kind of starts at?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, the term esotericist is a term that I'm bringing to the discussion. Wittgenstein didn't use that term about himself, but I think my experience reading the Tractatus and most people's experience reading the Tractatus is he sounds like he's talking to himself. It doesn't sound like he's talking to me um, or anyone else for that matter. He doesn't show a sort of concern to explain himself or to make what he's saying accessible to, to other people. And um, that uh, I think that feeling that Wittgenstein had about philosophy uh, remained even beyond the Tractatus. Um, scholars of Wittgenstein often draw a sort of clear distinction between the early and the later Wittgenstein, that is to say, between the Tractatus and the philosophical investigations. And there are obvious differences between the two. But um uh, I'm trying to get a, a, a kind of different difference, and that is what is his uh, attitude toward his his potential audience. And I think that he's uh, I use the term esotericist. It has a, a sort of background in uh, uh, in uh, in other contexts, but I think it's appropriate for Vickenshine too, in the sense that he doesn't really show a concern for. Uh, whether other people understand what he's up to or not. He's writing it for himself and perhaps a small circle of friends that have his special interests and uh, attitudes at heart, but uh, he's not interested in reaching beyond that. And I think that this starts to change in 1930 when he uh, comes back to philosophy. Uh, After the war, he trained as an elementary school teacher and then taught for many years in rural Austria teaching elementary school. And then uh, after that, he worked as an architect. uh, But he didn't come back to philosophy until about 1929. He came back to Cambridge and started rethinking some of his ideas about the, the Troctatus and he was invited to to lecture at Cambridge. And so starting in January of 1930, and then going on until his retirement in 1947, he taught about four dozen courses. And I think that his experience teaching was very formative for for him and how he approached philosophy. It took a little while, but um, the way I saw it anyway, uh, he started teaching in January, and very soon he started having interactions with his students that uh, uh, got him thinking. And um, uh, I think that these interactions finally sort of sunk in so that within about a year of starting to teach, he started to modify how he approached philosophy uh, and started rethinking what he was trying to accomplish. Um, the uh, What goes on in his lectures... Uh, uh, we know a a fair amount about that. Uh, And in fact, again, your colleague David Stern has published uh, G.E. Moore's lecture notes from starting in 1930 through uh, 1933. And we hear a lot about Bickenschein's ideas, but we don't find out much about how he interacted with his students. But I've been able to find uh, information from his students that were in those courses that give a, a somewhat different picture about how the classes went, and one of the things that Wittgenstein worried about when he first started teaching was what would happen if uh, things that uh, he wasn't uh, anticipating came up, and um, it turns out that fairly soon things that he wasn't anticipating started to come up, and they started to come up from the students of uh, with a mathematics background who were in those classes, and um, Uh, It turns out that there were quite a number of uh, sort of serious back and forth arguments in class and outside of class too. And we have good testimony about this, even though it doesn't show up in G.E. Moore's lecture notes. And so there's a couple instances of this in which I trace uh, things that happened in class and then how Wittgenstein started talking about those things. Wittgenstein students have often had a a reputation for just uh, sort of being mesmerized by his lectures and just being passive listeners. And I think that's true of some of his students. In fact, some of the students that are uh, the better known, like uh, uh, Maurice Drury and King and Lee and people like that. But uh, it turns out there were math students there who really weren't willing to just uh, accept what he had to say at face value and, and move on. They argued with him. and. Uh, I don't claim that they changed his mind. In fact, I think Wittgenstein had pretty clearly uh, established ideas in his own mind. But they changed, by sharing their mind with him, they changed his uh, attitude about what he was up to. And he started thinking hard about how he could influence people who came at things with a different perspective than his own perspective. And that, to me, is the movement then to uh, uh, what I call evangelism. And again, he doesn't use that term about himself. I use that term. Uh, the term has, you know, religious connotations, which I, uh, am uh, not particularly trying to draw on, although I, I think evangelism does, uh, remind us of the importance of, uh, sort of spiritual changes. And in a way that is what Wittgenstein was trying to do is to get people to look at problems in a, in a different way, take a different perspective on them, change their, in a way he was trying to address people's temperament, uh, and that, you know, that's closer to a spiritual kind of thing.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I mean, one of the interesting things that you, you know, talk about in the book, and this is certainly not unique to your book is just, you know, the whole sort of cult that grew up around him, the, you know, a very forceful personality, um, uh, you know, that, as you mentioned before, mesmerizing, you know, with the students sitting at his feet and, and, you know, you know, much more of a cult figure than than almost any other philosopher. You know, um, no matter how you know well known or or influential. I mean, so there's this there's a whole aspect of Wittgenstein that is just a matter. I don't know if I should say just, but it is is very much a matter of the fact that he had this incredibly forceful, charismatic, powerful personality, um, and. Um, One of the things that struck me in in your description of these interactions, um, you know, and I say that kind of in quotes because sometimes the way you describe it, he's not really interacting with them at all. Um, But just this, um, the kind of overpowering personality presenting these ideas and then getting angry when somebody raises a question that he's not prepared for. Um, um, how do you, how do you sort of assess that? I mean, do you ever, are you ever tempted to, you know, kind of give some sort of a, you know, psychoanalytic, <laughs> um, you know, analysis of, you know, the person, I mean, you mentioned the person, mm-hmm. um, uh, d- are you ever tempted to, you know, think about that aspect of his person?
1: I, I am tempted. Um, a little over 20, 20 years ago, I held a conference here at Virginia Tech called Wittgenstein Biography and Philosophy. And um, so I invited uh, several people to, to speak and also put out a, a, a an invitation for people to submit uh, papers. Anyway, uh, one of the people I invited to submit uh I'm invited to to talk with Jonathan Lear, who is uh, well known for his interest in Wittgenstein and in psychoanalysis. He he declined to participate because he didn't know what he wanted to say. But I did get another uh, person. uh, Louis Sass, who is uh, a clinical psychologist, to contribute to that. And uh, so he, he talks a little bit about that. It's not really a psychoanalysis, but, uh, you know, I think there's a lot going on there. Uh, I'm not sure what all you would do with it. But let me address the, the bigger question you ask about, you know, is there a cult of Wittgenstein and what should we make of that? One, one thing that um, when people hear, uh, especially philosophers, hear about Wittgenstein, then or that I'm that someone's interested in Wittgenstein, then they think of them as a Wittgensteinian, and uh, so that's a term that I myself would not apply to me. <laughs> um, I, I take Wittgensteinian to mean someone who just uh, goes along with Wittgenstein on every point, a sort of. Uh, 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 someone who thinks everything he said was right. And that isn't me at all. Uh, all of my work on Wittgenstein has been uh, with a, a certain kind of critical distance. And although I think he has lots of interesting things to say, I also think that, you know, he was wrong on certain things. And so um, I think my, I, I kind of stand outside of the, the so-called Wittgensteinian tradition. And I, th- I think the idea of him as a cult figure does come from some of these philosophers who were Wittgensteinians, um, you know, so people like uh, Norman Malcolm and uh, uh, Elizabeth Anscombe, for example. Um, and uh, it, it it's been interesting to me that when you look at uh, others of his students, uh, students who were uh, maybe from more of a mathematical background, they had a very different approach to Wittgenstein, and uh, they argued with him and found him to be, you know, willing to argue. And um, so, uh, uh, people like David Hayden Guest, uh, Max Black, Patrick Duval, uh, uh, these are named. These are. People have definitely heard of Max Black. Uh, he was actually a, a math student, not a philosophy student, although he was interested in philosophy. But David Hayden, Guest, Patrick Duvall, probably are names that aren't, aren't known, but they were significant students of his. And then later, of course, the most famous student of Wittgenstein's, Alan Turing, um, also had you know a combative relationship with Wittgenstein. He wasn't at all sort of uh, willing to let Wittgenstein you know make pronouncements and let let them slide. Uh, and uh, so I think it's uh, o- often the mathematics students that raise questions that led Wittgenstein to start thinking about how he could respond. And he did respond initially with anger and. Uh, Max Black has a, a memoir that uh, is, it, it, um, I actually discovered it in the Cornell Library when I was there doing research about 10 years ago, and I hadn't realized that it was privately published, but it's been privately published uh, a few a few years ago, I think by his daughter-in-law or something like that. Anyway, Black talks about a particular incident in, in lectures where Black had raised the question whether... Uh, infinite numbers are, are basically just kind of like uh, finite numbers, only larger. And uh, Wittgenstein got angry about this and said that was a ridiculous thing for him to say. And Black says he practically threw him out of class. And <laughs> But anyway, uh, over the years, Wittgenstein came to see that as a certain... Uh, attitude that he wanted to find ways to respond to. Instead of just angrily rejecting it, he wanted to present it as a kind of picture, which was misleading. And then he started thinking about, well, what what could you do to try to influence the pictures that people bring to philosophical problems? And that, I think, became a challenge for him. And uh, so... In his later writings, like the Philosophical Investigations, but also in things that led up to that, even for example the Blue Books, the the Blue Book, um, we 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 find a kind of conversation going in Wittgenstein's writing. Um, You know, not only does he sometimes put comments in quotation marks or between dashes to indicate another perspective or another point of view, but he also often uses phrases like one might think, or uh, at this point you might say such and such. Um, And you can actually see those very same things coming up in lecture notes uh, of, uh, in in notes of his lectures that indicate, I think, uh, ways in which uh, students have responded. And so uh, he's taking this sort of classroom Experience and finding a way to bring it into his writing, and uh, uh, and it doesn't, you know, you know, as a, as a classroom teacher, it doesn't work to just uh, lay a, an idea out there and insist on it that everyone believe it. Uh, the best way to Presented is to create a discussion around it, and uh, that's in a way what Wittgenstein is doing in his later writing is creating a discussion around certain kinds of issues, and it doesn't necessarily lead to him drawing a, a, a conclusion, uh, but it it is his way of trying to lead. The reader to think about things in a different way, and uh, uh, ultimately, uh, maybe uh, change their perspective on things. So this this is the the point at which uh, philosophy as poetry comes into the story. So um, in 1933 or 1934, Wittgenstein wrote in in one of his notebooks. He said one should really only do philosophy as poetry. He did it. He wrote this in German, and uh, in uh, I think it was 1977, uh, Georg Henrik von Richt uh, first collated what uh, was later translated as uh, culture and value and published that remark among a, a number of other remarks. And so once that was published in 1977, uh, fans of Wittgenstein reading this wondered what on earth he could possibly mean by saying one should really only do philosophy as poetry since he didn't write poetry and, you know, what's going on. So in a way, my book is an attempt to come to grips with that one line, uh, to try to find a context for it. You know, what, what did he mean by philosophy as poetry? What, uh, What did he what other things did he have to say about uh, this issue? And it turns out that there is a a large context for this, that Wittgenstein sort of interacted or or thought about uh, poetry uh, all through his life. And so I I try to uh, uh, gather together the evidence, so to speak, about his thoughts concerning poetry to put all put put this one remark into a much larger context. So that's uh, uh, w- one of the chapters in my book, Chapter Five, I guess it is. So uh, there is this big question: what, what does he mean here? And so the German word uh, that he uses is, is the verb "dichten," uh, which could be translated as "to write poetry." Uh, the the noun form "dichtung," uh, meaning poetry, but uh, as Marjorie Perloff uh, pointed out in, a, in an article about uh, this uh, passage. Uh, she says, you know, the German word is uh, not easily translated in ang- into English because it means a much broader range of things than the English word poetry does. And so that's one of the uh, the important issues is, well, what did Wittgenstein mean by that? And uh, Marjorie Perloff points out that uh, among things that might qualify as dichtung would be you know, narratives, stories, things written in a literary fashion, um, uh, vignettes, uh, maybe even aphorisms. And uh, I think this broader sense of uh, poetry is something that Wittgenstein used as a kind of tool to try to find new and different ways to address his reader or his listener, to try to get them to think about things uh, in a different way. Now, I, I didn't really uh, know, I don't still know very much about poetry. And so uh, I'm, I'm kind of going out on a limb in uh, addressing these kinds of issues. The subtitle then, though, Philosophy is Poetry, is a little bit misleading because, uh, you know, poetry in English has a fairly narrow meaning. And I don't want to limit what I'm talking about to that narrow meaning, but it does grab your attention. And so that was the the <laughs> the, the right. title that I used.
2: Well, let me, let me, uh, let me, you know, just to sort of, you know, before going more into that, you know, the issue of, of, you know, how best to influence other people's thinking or at least their approach to philosophical problems. Um, and, and speaking of poetry, I mean, you know, so I think of Emily Dickinson, who has been extraordinarily influential, and yet um, her life and personality, you might say, were, you know, sort of the opposite from Wittgenstein, right? Um, You know, none of this, you know, sort of charismatic, you know, big, you know, elite university, you know, um, you know, and none of that. I mean, she's just lived very quietly. She baked bread, you know, nobody knew her. And I sort of wonder, um, you know, do you think Wittgenstein's influence would have been as, you know, sort of big if he had been like a, you know, a lecturer you know a, a woman lecturer at university of nottingham or or you know not not to put down nottingham by any means but just like not cambridge right not oxford not that um would do you think if if he had just been the you know not the figure the personality that he would have had the same sort of influence if if somebody much like Emily Dickinson had written the Tractatus? Do you think it would have made such a big impression?
1: Well, uh, that's a good question. Yeah. You know, when the the Tractatus was published, nobody knew who Wittgenstein was outside of a few people like Bertrand Russell, so, John okay. Maynard Keynes and so forth. Um,
2: <laughs> Not minor people, right? No, no.
1: And, uh um, uh, just to make a little advertisement from my other book, uh, Tractatus in Context, one of the things I do in the appendix to that is gather together all of the uh, material that I could find about uh, reviews of the Tractatus that appeared in, the, in a couple of years after uh, after it was published. And there were actually nine published reviews. But uh, here, here's what I want to say about that. Um, the Troctatus, for example... Uh, was very influential in the members that became the Vienna Circle. I'm not exactly sure when we should say the Vienna Circle started. But anyway, they got interested in the Tractatus uh, in um, uh, 1924, I think, and, uh, you know, studied it carefully, line by line. And uh, Schlick uh, wanted to meet Wittgenstein, although he was never able to do that until I think it was 1927, something like that. But you know, I think that the Tractatus started to have influence not because of who Wittgenstein was, but because the the book was so uh, peculiar. Uh, I, I guess it is true. You know, it was published with an introduction by uh, by Russell. So you know, I, I can't say that it came out of that it, that it was coming out of nowhere. But Vickenshine himself wasn't a, a known figure at all. His, his, let's put it this way. His personality didn't come out until mm-hmm. much later.
0: <laughs> right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person go to shopify.com slash system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today that's shopify.com slash system good
2: okay um so um we've so we talked about the well i want to you know sort of go back to the poem the poetry aspect right. um right. but one of one of the um you know, sort of, I guess, transitional uh, aspects that you talk about is in some of his responses to um, Fraser's The Golden Bough, you know, and um, you use that as a kind of example to show this transition in his, at least his presentation of his ideas in order to influence people rather than, you know, changing the ideas themselves. I mean... um, Can you can you sort of explain why that's a transition, what he's doing there that kind of shows that there's a transition going on Mm
1: -hmm. Um, in chapter two of my book? I call it uh, uh, titled uh, Wittgenstein and his students. I talk about how this these issues come up in his lectures and uh, in his interactions with his students. And then in chapter three, titled Wittgenstein at work, I talk about how they start to come up in his writing. And I choose, as you say, uh, his remarks on Fraser as an example of this. Um, and uh, I choose it partly because Wittgenstein's remarks on Fraser are among his best known remarks, actually, especially outside of philosophy. You know, there are uh, anthropologists, uh, people in religious studies uh, That are interested in in those remarks, even if they maybe don't really get around to reading much else of Wittgenstein. So anyway, those remarks have a a, a certain importance in terms of Wittgenstein's uh, reputation generally. He was writing them in 1931, uh, especially early 1931. And uh, that makes them especially interesting to me because I feel, because I uh, have uh, thought that this transition of Wittgenstein from a, an esotericist to an evangelist takes place in around, I, I, I'm not putting a pinpoint on it, so to speak, but it's a transition that becomes fairly clear in 1931, especially sort of the, the first half of and the summer of 1931. And that's exactly when he's writing the remarks on Fraser. And by the way, for uh, scholars, you uh, he there are actually two sets of remarks that he writes on Fraser. The other, come, the other uh, remarks come much later, and I'm just focusing on what are the remarks that he wrote in 1931. And uh, he he comes he sees uh, uh, Fraser. Fraser is uh, an anthropologist who looks at uh, ancient and um, th- you know, might might say third world. Religious practices and tries to understand them and tries to explain them, and um, he more or less sees uh, primitive religious practices as being bad science, uh, uh, trying to you know m- make things happen uh, through means that, from a scientific point point of view, we know uh, uh, can't happen, and so uh, Wittgenstein is is. Uh, Uh, He's been reading some of uh, Fraser's writing from from Fraser's Golden Bough uh, with uh, one of his students. And uh, he he feels like Fraser is getting it all wrong by trying to present these primitive uh, practices as uh, primitive science, uh, as to trying to uh, see them as pseudo explanations for phenomena. And so... uh, so Fraser is a, a good example of someone who has the wrong frame of mind. And what Wittgenstein would like to be able to do is to change this frame of mind uh, where uh, where Fraser is trying to explain why something happens. Wittgenstein is trying to get us to just see that it does happen, uh, uh, see it not as uh, an attempt at a a scientific explanation, but as more of a, uh, a ceremony. And so he, he tries to connect it more with things that we do that we would be familiar with as, you know, ceremonies. Uh, uh, so to try and get it to to look differently. And so he, he, uh, for example, he prefaces his remarks uh, in, in the course, he, in the course of uh, writing and then editing his own remarks, he prefaces it with a Uh, a few lines in which he says something along the lines of, if you're trying to uh, uh, change uh, your viewpoint about something—it's not enough just to state the op- the opposite, but to find a way from the one viewpoint to the other. And I think this encapsulates very well what he's trying to do generally. He's trying to find ways to get people to think differently. So it, it doesn't work just to prove they're wrong or to, you know, assert the opposite, but to try to find a path from one point of view to another. And so I think this is. When he starts taking seriously the idea that there might be an alternate way of doing philosophy, sort of along the lines of poetry, um, mm-hmm. so so I, I see that this as a kind of turning point in his writing uh, that corresponds to a similar turning point in his lecturing.
2: Right. Okay. So um, good. Um, so yeah, to 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 pick up on the on the poetry um so i mean as i understood it and you know correct me the the idea the general idea was that he's it's kind of kind of trying to do you know uh you know philosophy as a is a sort of a cognitive enterprise and trying to do it in a non-cognitive method like poetry is that is that a is that a um more or less accurate way to think about
1: what he's trying to do, um, n- not completely, but sort of. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's fine. Yeah. So I uh, I I open the book with three uh, little quotations, um, epigraphs, basically. Uh, wh- one of them from 1931. He says, "I don't try to make you believe something you don't believe, but to make you do something you won't do." And um, what, so, what does he mean by that? Um, yeah, and so I think he's trying to find ways to address people in ways that aren't fully cognitive uh, approaches. So, what I believe is a sort of cognitive issue. And if you want to change my beliefs, uh, you might uh, approach that by trying to disprove me or uh, something along those lines. And what he says there is, I'm not trying to make you believe something you don't believe, make you do something you won't do. Now, um, what does he mean by do here? I, I see this more in terms of I, I'm trying to get you to look at things in a different way. I'm trying to get you to uh, feel differently about certain things. Uh, Wittgenstein, if you look at the the philosophical investigations, which, which uh, is written much later than the early 30s, but I think it encapsulates his concerns or it, it's a sort of development of his concerns, he... Uh, He says over and over things like, uh, you might be tempted to suppose that such and such, or this kind of picture uh, possesses you, or he he uses what I want to call a non-cognitive terminology for the sorts of issues that he wants to address. He wants to address how we feel about things, how we think about things, how we react to things, and that's going to require different means or different artillery, (laughs) to use my uh, metaphor. It's going to require different artillery from the artillery that we're used to in philosophical discussions. And so that's what he's trying to marshal, I think, uh, in, in his evangelical phase. Um, so uh, in chapter six of my book, I go through, uh, I, I present 15 different either vignettes or uh, aphorisms or th- uh, things from Wittgenstein that um, are, are, some of them are well-known, some of them are not well-known, but I, I see them as his attempts to do do philosophy in a more poetic fashion. And then uh, along with discussing those, I try to find things from other literature uh, um, that, are trying to accomplish something similar to what Wittgenstein is trying to accomplish. And so in that chapter, I draw on uh, parables from the Bible, uh, passages from uh, Plato, uh, children's literature, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, uh, science fiction, uh, Lewis Carroll. So uh, I'm, I'm looking for things that are more literary that are trying to do what Wittgenstein is trying to do, um, and uh, there's a there's a, a fair amount of stuff that Wittgenstein's trying to do himself that doesn't that isn't well known. It doesn't come up in the Philosophical Investigations. I would say maybe only about half of the passages that I discuss there are in the Investigations, but others things come up in others of his writings or some of his lectures uh, uh, and in different contexts, and um, the. Another one of the epigraphs that I use at the beginning of the book is uh, this one from 1947. Uh, So 1947 is when Wittgenstein stopped lecture, retired from his lecturing. And Wittgenstein says, uh, he wrote, rather, quite different artillery is needed here from anything I am in a position to muster. And uh, I take this to be a kind of uh, uh, humble admission that he hasn't been able to do the philosophy of poetry that he hoped to be able to do. And I think what he did was interesting and provocative and so forth, but he himself didn't think it really accomplished what he was trying to accomplish. And so what I'm doing in my book is trying to see where you might go if you wanted to work at this project uh, uh take you know take up this project from Wittgenstein and see see where it might go so i'm not saying that i'm better than Wittgenstein but i'm trying to take his idea and see where uh, you could go with it and so um one of the uh, people who wrote a a blurb for my book uh said that it was uh said that the book was uh quite personal and i think that's a, a fair description of especially uh Uh, the the later chapters in the book that, you know, I'm trying to do, see how I might or we might do what Wittgenstein was trying to do. Mm -hmm.
2: So, I mean, uh, you know, this, this issue of, you know, getting people, you know, audiences to look at things in a different way. Um, I mean, specifically talking about language right I mean it's not just you know things looking at the world differently it's you know he's interested in language and how it functions and um so be you know getting people to think about language in a different way in terms of how it's used right I mean famously um was there something more that he was trying to accomplish, than other than just thinking about language as not just this sort of truth conditional calculus, but you know, a living thing that you know is part of a way of life. Was it? Was there something beyond that that he was trying to do?
1: Well, I think that one of the things that Wittgenstein was quite uh, interested in was trying to avoid the idea that science provides us a model for philosophy and, uh, science as, uh, theorizing as coming as coming up with, uh, you know, re- reductive theories. Um, um, and in general, uh, you know, I, I guess I would say, uh, theorizing is he's trying to avoid philosophy as theorizing and, that I think uh, accounts a, a lot for why Wittgenstein is not a, a, an especially influential philosopher right now, where we stand in 21st century philosophy. Because I think a lot of philosophers w- want to take f- science as a kind of model and want to theorize about, you know, language or whatever it is that they're that they're interested in. So I think this puts Wittgenstein outside of the the sort of main line track of philosophy over the last 50 years or something like that. In fact, um, 10 years ago, I published a, 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 a book called Wittgenstein in Exile, and exile was a metaphor that I used then to express precisely this point that Wittgenstein is outside of the the, the tradition that we find most natural and um, and I, so I think that that's a, an important factor. So he's he's trying to find ways to get us to stop trying to theorize about stuff and um, uh, language, but you know, all kinds of things.. Um, right. And, and yeah. the, So just to emphasize the the non-cognitive aspect that goes on here, I was um, uh, in the first chapter of the book, I, uh, give a kind of summary of the project that, or the projects that Wittgenstein is undertaking in the, in his philosophical investigations in part one of the philosophical investigations. And so I, I just uh, list a bunch of, phrases that he uses uh, to express what he's up to. So he says things like he's interested in what forces itself on us or holds us captive, demands an answer, must be, what leads us, what we can't help thinking, what we're tempted or seduced or bewitched or dazzled by, what strikes us, what Uh, how things look to us, what we find surprising or convincing, what our compulsions or needs are, what we notice, uh, what we're committed to. Um, There's uh, over a hundred places where in the philosophical investigation, Wittgenstein says these are what he's trying to address. Well, these are non-cognitive issues. And uh, so I, I see poetry as his way of trying to, uh, or one way of expressing what he's uh, trying to do in, in those ways.
2: So um, did he just find himself in the wrong tradition? I mean, uh, you know, I mean, Russell wasn't, was an early, you know, mentor and, and promoter and and so forth. Um, and of course, Russell is one of the big, the big founders of, you know, the analytic philosophy that that we both, you know, essentially belong to. Um, but there's a whole continental tradition of writing philosophy in, I would say, you know, kind of very much this way, a very literary. They're not trying to, you know, prove things. They're not, you know, a lot of it would be declared nonsense by, you know, air or, you know, people in the logical positivist tradition. So, I mean, it's what sounds in a way that, you know, Wittgenstein just like kind of found himself in the wrong crowd and he he should have just gone right over to the, you know, the French, you know, or, or stayed in Germany or something. Or, well, not, you know, Austria, but, yeah. I mean, what is different about his approach that isn't part of... The continental tradition.
1: Yeah, that, that's a uh, that's a good question, and let me use the the Tractatus as a, a a way of helping to answer that. Even though my book uh, Wittgenstein's Artillery is is not primarily about the early philosophy or about, or about the Tractatus, I think it helps answer your question or give a perspective on Wittgenstein. So he got interested in philosophy because of his work in aeronautics, and that interested him in, in some mathematical issues. And then that led to some questions about the foundations of, of mathematics. And so that's the route that Wittgenstein took into philosophy. And when he went, went to Cambridge to study with Russell, that's what he was interested in. And in the two years that he spent at uh, Cambridge, and then the, the year that he spent in Norway by himself after that working on his stuff, it was all Along those lines, and if he had uh, um, uh, died in World War One, uh, and that had gotten published, the Tractatus would look a whole lot like uh, Russell's philosophy, um, yeah. Yeah. or you know, some some version of that. I mm-hmm. mean, Wittgenstein had important uh, criticisms and, and so forth, but uh, uh, largely along those lines. And it's actually his fighting. Uh, in the war, his experiences in the war that uh, make for the last two dozen propositions in the Troctatus. Um, uh, and uh, that's something that I talk about in my other book, Tractatus in Context. I devote a whole chapter to describing uh, his experiences in the war and how they were uh, influential on him. And then the last chapter is about the last two dozen propositions in the Troctatus and uh, what, what to make of them. Um, so um, Wittgenstein uh, really does have primarily what I would call analytic philosophical interests but what he sees is that there is a, a lot behind what leads us to take points of take positions or articulate points of view and uh, that's what becomes interesting um, Russell Uh, in his time with Wittgenstein before the war uh, related an anecdote of how Wittgenstein was pacing back and forth after midnight in his rooms, which I guess he did regularly. And uh, Russell finally asked him, are you thinking about logic or your sins? And Wittgenstein said both. And uh, I think that sort of uh, encapsulates uh, something about Wittgenstein that somehow the person can't be separated from the ideas. And I think that always has stuck with him. But uh, uh, I think one thing that he always cared about was clarity. And so maybe that's one reason why he shouldn't go to the continental <laughs> tradition, since I think clarity probably is not one of their primary virtue, philosophical virtues. Uh, for him, it was a, a primary philosophical virtue.
2: Well, that's an odd thing to say. Uh because he does, you know, use all these aphorisms and stories and then he like leaves. He doesn't write down what conclusion you're supposed to draw. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I, I would not have said that clarity is one of Wittgenstein's virtues either.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, maybe it maybe, and, and this might well be. Uh, Part of the point of different artillery is necessary here from anything I'm in a position to muster. Let's just say clarity was something that he aspired to. I I don't say that he uh, uh, succeeded. Sure. Let's see. Uh, He did actually in his discussions with uh, Schlick uh, talk about Heidegger a little bit. So he he wasn't uh, completely unfamiliar with with that tradition. But I think his his the topics that most interested him come out of the analytic tradition. But Mm -hmm. the way he wants to address them is does not sit easily with the the analytic tradition.
2: Okay, that's yeah, that's helpful. Okay. Well, we're, we're running out of time at this point. Um, we're starting to, so, um, before we close, I'd like to find out, you know, what, um, is next on the horizon for you. I mean, what, are you, I mean, you just came out with this book and another one. Um, are you working on, on, on another Wittgenstein book? Or are you turning to something else? What's, what's on your desk at the moment?
1: Well, thank you. I have uh, I have two projects on my desk. Uh, one's been uh, rather long in coming. In uh, 2003, Alfred Nordman and I published a collection of primary material from Wittgenstein called Public and Private Occasions. And it included the German as well as Nordman's English translation of Wittgenstein's uh, diaries from 1930 to 1932 and 1936 to 1937. These have been come to be... Uh, manuscript number 183, uh, been titled the movement of thought diaries. And these are tremendously important and not well-known, mostly not well-known because the book they were published in cost about $150. And when <laughs> we made the original arrangement with Roman and Littlefield to publish them, our understanding was that there would shortly thereafter be a, a paperback edition of just the English translation. Well, that didn't happen and didn't happen. And, uh, but finally, uh, uh, about a year ago, uh, an editor with Roman Littlefield did agree to do that. Uh, we had to come up with a, a subvention. But anyway, uh, uh, we're working now on coming up with an affordable paperback edition of the English translation of the movements of thought diaries. And I think they're tremendously important. Uh, I make use of them in both my uh, uh, books Wittgenstein in Exile and Wittgenstein's Artillery. And I think people who are interested in Wittgenstein, especially in his life would want to read these. So um, we should be we've been uh, revising the, the, the uh, footnotes and so forth and we've gotten Ray Monk to write an introduction. So we're really excited about that new publication. The other thing is uh, much more recent. Um, well, not completely recent, but in 1999, I went to the annual Wittgenstein uh, uh, conference in Austria and met a man uh, named Wasfi Hijab, who was a student of Wittgenstein's in 19, from 1945 to 1947. And in fact, he was, uh, Wittgenstein was his dissertation supervisor. Uh, for a a dissertation on, uh, as he told me, philosophic problems between science and religion. And uh, Wittgenstein retired in 1947, and uh, Hijab was a Palestinian, and um, uh, when Palestine was uh, basically uh, 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 uncreated in 1948, uh, he was left a kind of uh, crushed man, uh, he followed Wittgenstein's advice not to go into philosophy, and so uh, he became a. He eventually got a, a Ph.D. in mathematics. He had been a mathematics teacher already. He got a Ph.D. and he spent his career teaching at the American University in Beirut, uh, teaching mathematics. Anyway, he came to uh, this conference in 1999. He wasn't on the program. Uh, but uh, they allowed him to give two talks, uh, and I, I got to know him. And he told me that he was writing a thousand page memoir about his experiences with Wittgenstein and his ideas. I tried to keep in touch with him, uh, but uh, was unable to do that. Uh, he passed away in 2004, and there it lay for a long time. But a couple of years ago, I decided to see if I could find out more. I got in touch with uh, his daughter, Nadja Hijab, who's a Palestinian journalist in London. And she said, well, I don't really know uh, what became of that, but we do have 11 uh, three-and-a-half-inch floppy disks from uh, my father. And uh, after some discussion and uh, uh, signing an agreement, uh, she uh, gave me those... uh, um, discs. And, um, uh, when I printed out them, it, it actually, I had to get an I help of, from an IT person, but, uh, we printed out the material and it came out to about 3,300 pages of material. It, there's a lot of it that's, uh, repetitious, uh, redrafting and so on and so forth. So, um, Anyway, the other project is to publish a book uh, that I w- want to call Wittgenstein's Last Student, in which I will, uh, I hope, be able to edit this down into a, a usable uh, a, a, a memoir that readers can engage with. Um Uh, There's a lot of interesting stuff in the memoir. I haven't even finished reading all of it (laughs) because it's long. But uh, I use a couple of the things from the memoir in my book, Wittgenstein's Artillery, but people need to see the the whole memoir. And uh, it's interesting because it's written by someone who didn't go into philosophy, someone who took Wittgenstein's uh, advice seriously to not become a philosopher. uh, Hijab is also a mathematician, and I think mathematicians had a special sort of... um, Uh, insight into uh, Vickenschein's work that uh, a lot of his followers did not have. So there's lots that's, uh, I think, really new and interesting and engaging in Hijab's memoir. And that's my other project.
2: Great. Well, that sounds very interesting. And uh, I wish you luck with both of those projects. They both sound pretty extensive and uh, will be nice contributions. Right. So um, so I wanna thank you for taking the time for talking with New Books and Philosophy about about Wittgenstein's artillery. And I wish you luck with your um with the projects you're working on.
1: Thank you, and let me just add one one more thing. This week, I believe, is the one hundredth anniversary of the publication of Wittgenstein's uh, 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 German version of the Tractatus uh, that first came out in a in a, a journal Logisch Philosophische Abhandlung, uh, I think, was published a hundred years ago in early April, nineteen twenty-two. So,
2: wow.
1: we'll celebrate that too.
2: Great. Okay. Well, thank you, and. Uh, Uh, Again, good luck, and thanks for talking with us.
1: Okay, thank you for your interest, and uh, I enjoyed it.
2: Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Jim Claga, professor of philosophy at Virginia Tech. Uh, We've been talking about his new book, Wittgenstein's Artillery, Philosophy as Poetry, which is just out from the MIT Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy, I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.